Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys on this beautiful, rainy fall day. Um, before, before we pray and we get into the Word, um, we're going to call up Andrew. Andrew, if you want to come up. I know he loves this. Uh, this is Andrew's last Sunday with us as he's being shipped to the Coast Guard. Um, and so, I don't, you, you can just stand, no, you just stand right here. Andrew, Andrew grew up in this church. Um, and so his mom and dad have been faithful covenant members, and he's been a faithful covenant member serving at exemplifying guest services. And so this is the last Sunday uh, for a while, so we're going to pray over him and send him off. And so mom, dad, if you guys want to come up forward, um, family, friends, uh, if you guys want to come up forward, let's lay our hands on him and let's pray for him and ask the Lord to use him in a mighty way as he goes off and serves this great nation in the Coast Guard. Lord, I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. I thank you for Andrew and the young man he's turned out to be, a man that loves you and is faithful to you. Lord, thank you for the desire that you've placed in his heart to serve others. Lord, thank you uh, for the opportunity you've provided for him to, to serve this country. Lord, I do pray that when he goes off, can you be with him? Can you help him to keep on fixing his eyes on you to trust in you? Can you surround him with good friends that will encourage his heart and faithfully point him to you? Can you provide for him? Can you protect him? And can you use him in a mighty way? And Lord, can you be with mom and dad? Can you encourage their hearts in this time? And can you help them to trust you? And Lord, please provide for this family. We're so grateful for this family. We love them so much bless them and we ask all of this in jesus name amen, amen. thank you <laughs> if you have your bible says go ahead and uh and grab them and let's go to daniel uh we're in daniel chapter 3 uh, verse 1. And so let me pray that the Lord would really speak to us, that he would open up our eyes. Um, even though we can read the Word of God, we also understand that we cannot understand the Word of God without the help of his Spirit. So, so let's ask the Lord to really stir our hearts and open up our eyes. Lord, we thank you uh, for today. Uh, Lord, as we open up your Word, can you speak to us? Holy Spirit, can you illuminate truth to us? Can you help us to see just the glorious truth that we find in this passage. Can you help us to not just understand it intellectually, but let it transform our hearts, let it transform our actions and our desires. As we see the faithfulness of three young men and your faithfulness of being with them in the fire and saving them out of the fire, well, can you help us to be able to walk faithfully before you? Can you help us to identify the idols we see in our lives and forsake those idols and chase after you? Because at the end of the day, we see you as far more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. 
Can you help us to be captivated by you? Just be overwhelmed by your beauty, by your glory, by your riches. And Lord, you, you know everybody in this room. You know uh, what we're going through, what we're thinking, what we're struggling with, the idols that we're bowing down to. Lord, can you expose those idols? And can you help us to look to you? Can you help us to trust in you and to live for you? Can you help us to surrender our lives? So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Daniel, and so my hope for us in this series, and the reason why I picked the book of Daniel is two things. First of all, is that when we find ourselves in turmoil, especially today, that we will be reminded that God is establishing an everlasting kingdom. And the second thing is that, that we would be encouraged, like as exiles, as wanderers, that we would remain faithful to the Lord, trusting in His sovereign plan, trusting that the Lord is in complete control of everything. And so today, as we get to chapter 3, as we see the story unfold, we will discover men of courage, commitment, and conviction. And that would be inspiring. But what we'll even see, and that's more important, we'll see a faithful God who does not deliver His people from the fire, but rather He is with them in the fire and delivers them out of the fire. And that's what we're going to see is the Lord's faithfulness. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the province assembled before the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire." Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's some sentences that are just a mouthful. Um, But so it's really interesting. So in the previous chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a giant statue. And this statue was made of various metals, and we've learned that in the interpretation of the dream of this statue, it had a head of gold that represented Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold. And now we find out he is making his own statue. 
But this entire statue is made of gold. In a sense, he is communicating that this statue in his dream that was made up of various elements really should be only a statue of gold because his kingdom is the one that's supposed to endure forever. So from head to toe, the statue is covered in gold. In a sense, it is a defiance against the God of heaven that has revealed this dream and this vision to the king. As if the king is thinking to himself, whatever Daniel revealed to me, now I know what's laying ahead, so I'm going to try to stop it. He told me that my kingdom is the head of gold, but it's only going to last for a while. So if I can somehow take precautions, measures, and unify the kingdom, then I can secure my kingdom and the entire statue, not just the head, will represent my kingdom. In a sense, like, why set up for the head if you can be the entire statue? And this is what the king does. So the king, he summons all the important people of Babylon for the dedication of the statue. And a time will be set where there will be a public pledge of national and religious allegiance to the king where every people from all nations, tribes, and tongue will be participating And for the king, and the king's mind is for his kingdom to survive, it must be united. And so this statue is an attempt for national, political, and religious unification. We have one God that all of us are dedicating ourselves to, and that is King Nebuchadnezzar. And with it, you will have grand emotional music that would accompany the moment of dedication that will kind of add this powerful psychological element to the service. And so when they hear the music, it would stir their emotions and they respond in worshiping the idol as they're putting their hope in the king. But then there's also the warning. What would happen if you do not worship this idol? If you do not pledge allegiance to the king and to the kingdom, death will await you. And so here's the first thing I think we can learn from this story, if you're taking notes. That as exiles, we are exiles just like the three young men that we're going to read about are exiles. God's people will be confronted by the idols of the world. So as exiles, God's people will be confronted by the idols of the world. Now, when we read the story, maybe you don't think like this, but I do. When we read the story, we're thinking, that's pretty ridiculous that people will bow down to some golden statue and worship it. Like, how dumb is that? Like, everybody knows it's a golden statue. It's not a god. But what we have to understand is they weren't bowing down to the golden statue per se, but rather to what the golden statue represented. This golden statue didn't represent the king and their kingdom. And so in their mind, by them bowing down to the golden statue, they're bowing down to the king as equivalent to being a god. In other words, what they're doing in bowing down, pledging allegiance to this king is saying that our hope is in this king. He is the one that's going to provide for us. He is the one that's going to fulfill us and satisfy us and protect us and give us security. Our allegiance and our devotion is to the king and to the king alone. In a sense, what they're doing is they're putting their hope in the king and the king's kingdom. 
And idol worship is not necessarily bowing down to statues. If it was, it would be easy. But idol worship to its core is anything we put our hope in to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to provide for us, to give us meaning, to give us comfort or security other than God. And many things can be good things that become idolatrous things. I love what Paul David Tripp says. The quote that he says is, when good things become ruling things, that things become an idol. But let me give you a quick example, and I don't want to spend too much time on the examples. Think about a spouse. The the Bible says he who has found a wife has found a, a good thing. Is a spouse a gift from the Lord? Yes, it is. But a spouse can become an idol that we bow down to when we put our hope in our spouses to fulfill us, to complete us, to provide for us, to give us security and comfort. That our entire world revolves around our spouses. Then it becomes an idolatrous thing. The same with children. The Bible says children are a blessing. And the more children you have, the more you are blessed. They are like arrows in our quiver. They're gifts from the Lord. But when our identity is in being a mom and a dad and we're so consumed by our children for them to satisfy us and to fulfill us and to give us meaning and purpose, those things become idols that we bow down to. One more and I'm done. Happiness. Is being happy a bad thing? No. But when that becomes a consuming thing and we chase after it, And that's all we want in life. And our hope is in obtaining and pursuing happiness outside of God. Then it becomes an idol. And as God's people, we are going to be continually confronted by the idols of the world. And the world is going to continue to put pressure on us to bow down to these idols saying, these are the things that satisfy you. These are the things that comfort you and provides for you. There are good things. Look at how happy they make us. Why don't you go ahead and bow down to these things? And I wish idol worship is statues that it's obvious and we can say, that's just dumb, I'm not going to bow down to it. But the reality of it is idols are hidden things that our hearts are longing for and chasing after and they are empty things because they promise all these things and yet they never satisfy. We look at it in our world, look at all the idols that our world is chasing after. Look at all, we're chasing after comfort and convenience and security and prosperity. Yet we find ourselves in a mental crisis. Why? Because we've obtained these things and we found out that they're empty. So what do you do when you've chased after something your entire life and you think you've acquired it and you're just disappointed? You find yourself in crisis. And so as God's people, we or being confronted by the idols of our world. We're being tempted to bow down to these things that our world is bowing down to. And they're not obvious things. They're hidden things. Sometimes they are good things, but these good things become bad things because they become ruling things. And so in our confrontation with the idols of this world, we need to be diligent and constantly investigating what is my hope in? 
What am I chasing after? What am I trusting in? What do I believe is going to satisfy and fulfill me? And if it is not God, it is an idol. And it will, you will end up being empty. And so this idol worship that occurred in our story provided an opportunity for God's people to be accused. Let, let, let's look at verse 8 and see what's happening in our story. So some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, a flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And so those who are accusing Daniel's three friends, they flatter the king. And their plan is to draw the king into a, their rhetoric and then guide them to the conclusion that they hope for. So, so they kind of remind the king of the decree and the warning that he has given. And after reviewing the king's decree and the, the accusers reach their climax and then they heighten the horror of the situation by reminding the king there are some Jews who are defying the king in a high position. And oh, by the way, you're the one that has appointed them to that high position. So basically what they're doing is, hey, king, you created a problem. It's all your fault. And in a sense, you're going to have to deal with it. Are you going to put up with a defiance of men that you've put in powerful positions? And so this is where the situation is. And the second thing we, we learn from, from the story is exiles. Not only will God's people be confronted by the idols of the world, but if you're taking notes as exiles, God's people will be criticized by the people of the world. God's people will be criticized or accused by the people of the world. Honoring and obeying the Lord is not always popular. Living a life that is faithful to God will lead us to be criticized, ostracized, and even at times hated. Why? Because at times when we obey the Lord, it goes against the grain of our culture. Now, I was debating of saying this because I know there are two groups of people there are those who just loves to naturally go against the grain of the culture. So you don't need any more fuel to the fire of resisting anything from the culture. And there's those of you that are just being swept away by anything and everything. But I do think there's a passage in the Bible that really ministers to us that tells us what it means to be faithful and gracious and obeying the Lord even in the midst of accusations. And I'm just going to let Scripture minister to you without explaining it. But this is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 verse 13 to 17. He says this, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. 
Do not fear them or be imitated, uh, intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness, reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We've already seen in chapter 2 how quick the king unravels, and so it's to no surprise how he's going to respond to this problem that he has created. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So in other words, the, the king gives them one more opportunity. One more chance to bow down to the statue that the king has created, to bow down to his power and to his authority. But if not, they will be immediately cast into the burning, firing furnace. And their high position would not exempt them. But look at verse 15. Look at how the king is so confident in his power that he boldly mocks any possibility of deliverance. Second part of verse 15, the last uh, thing, it says, And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? What's the king saying? I am so powerful that no God will ever be able to rescue you from me. I'm the ultimate God. If you do not pledge allegiance to me, you will die. What a mockery. And look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to this so-called God, the most powerful man in the world. Look, Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. So the king demands their obedience. And yet they felt no obligation to explain themselves nor even to defend themselves. They did not beg for mercy, nor did they compromise on their position. And we see two if statements in verse 17 and verse 18. The first if statement imagines their deliverance. They say, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us. The second if statement imagines their martyrdom. But even if he does not rescue us, 
We will not serve you. We will not bow down to you. We will not worship you. So in other words, regardless of the outcome, three things are made very clear. They will worship God and God alone. They will trust God and His sovereign purposes. And they will trust in God's power and God's protection and leave whatever happens to, providential, to God's providential plan. Which leads us to the, thir- the third thing that we learn as exiles. As God's people, not only will be, we be confronted by idols, but we will also uh, be accused or criticized by the people of the world. And the third thing, if you're taking note, as God's people, we must remain faithful and courageous in the face of opposition. We must remain faithful and courageous in the face of opposition. There was no doubt in their mind that God has the power to save them. Yet it wasn't clear to them if it was part of God's plan to save them. And we've seen this throughout Scripture. Uh, Throughout Scripture, we've seen God's power being displayed in a dramatic way where He delivers His people. We look at Israel when He brought them out of Egypt and He parted the Red Sea as the Egyptians were pursuing God's people and God destroyed the entire army of Egypt. But then there are other times where God does not deliver His people, allows His people to suffer. Either way, regardless of the outcome, God's people must remain faithful and courageous. I I think for many of us, and we're going to talk about it at the application, it's easy to remain faithful and courageous when we know the outcome. And I think for many of us, sometimes our faithfulness and courageousness is tied to the hope of the outcome. But what we see with these three men, it was in the Lord and the Lord alone regardless of the outcome. The outcome did not determine whether they were going to remain faithful and courageous. They were going to trust the Lord. And as exiles, we cannot just trust the Lord when we know the outcome. Most of the time, we don't know the outcome. We have to trust the Lord and be courageous regardless of the outcome. Why? Because we believe that God has the power to save us. And even if He does not save us, what He is doing is for His glory and for our good. And, and I'm sure the three boys, the, the, the way they looked at us, even if they die in the furnace, where are they going to be? They're going to be with the Lord. So either way, the Lord has delivered them. And this is what they were trusting in. And so we see these three men, they face death. Look, look, look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the burning, the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. In other words, what, what, what Daniel is trying to tell us as he's recording the story is, 
yeah, there's no chances of them surviving. They're, they're done. They're close. Man, that's just going to help them burn even faster. So the king and all the loyal subjects, they're just going to set back. This execution is going to be over in a snap. But then something surprising happens. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Mishap, and Abednego. Your servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was, was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's commands and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so here we, we see the king knew he had a problem. He threw three men in, they didn't die. In fact, they were no longer bound, walking around unhurt as if the power of the fire was no big deal to them. But then he exclaims and, and he jumps up and he says, there is someone forth. And he calls them in verse 28, a son of the, a son of the gods. In verse 28, he calls him an angel. Either way, this is a divine heavenly being now now some scholars say is this just simply an angel of god was this the unique angel of the lord who has appeared throughout the old testament so is this a christophany or a theopany a theopany is god manifesting himself a christophany is the person of christ manifesting himself either way regardless of what it is what remains true is that the lord was with them he didn't save them from the fire but he was with them in the fire which leads us to our last point if you're taking notes as god's people regardless of what we're going through we can be confident that the lord is always with us no matter what we're facing we can be confident that the Lord is always with us. I'm just overwhelmed by this truth. The God that did not deliver them from the fire, which in my mind would just be way easier. He allows them to be in the fire. He meets them in the fire. And then he saves them out of it. When we look at Scripture... We've seen how the Lord operates. 
the Lord doesn't save us from things, which again, in my opinion, would be so much easier. Just save us from sin and get it over with. No, what does he do? He is with us in it, and he saves us out of it. Think of the Israelites out of Egypt. The Egyptian army is chasing after them. Wouldn't it have just been easy for the Lord just to say a word and the entire army of Egypt just vanish? No. The Lord is with them. He's leading them. He is guiding them. He parts the sea. He's before them and behind them. And he throws the army in such confusion. He doesn't save them from it. He's with them in it and saves them out of it. And this should be an encouraging truth for us. That regardless of what we're facing, as we're confronted by the idols of the world and we're trying to remain faithful and courageous to the Lord and not bowing down to the things the world tells us to bow down, saying this will fulfill, this will satisfy. In the midst of us being accused, in the midst of us even facing opposition, the Lord is with us. Emmanuel, God with us us and we see this is even a fulfillment this fiery furnace is a fulfillment of the prophecy in isaiah 43 verse 2 it says when you pass through the waters i'll be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you in other words what the lord is saying through isaiah we can take it literally or we can even take it metaphorically No matter what's going on, I am with you. The waters will not overwhelm you. The flames will not burn you because I am there with you. But in the midst of the water, in the midst of the the fire, what do you have to do? Trust the Lord. Remain faithful to Him. Courageous, clinging to the truth. My God has not abandoned me. My God is with me. My God has the power to deliver me. And even if he does not, I trust him that whatever outcome happens, it's for his glory and for my good. In this story, and we're going to talk about application in a minute, the story that Daniel was recording really was an encouraging story to the people of God the Jews, because what the story reminded them of as exiles, God has not abandoned them. God is with them. God is working among them. And I think the story for us can can be encouraging as well. We are an exile on our way to the promised land. We find ourselves wandering. We find ourselves in the midst of chaos and turmoil starting to face opposition, especially on the western side. It's on the eastern side a lot. And we can be encouraged. The Lord is working. He's not abandoned his people. He is with them. Now, let's talk about application here. Because I know for some of you are thinking, okay, Neil, I get it. It's great. We're going to be confronted with idols, and somehow we have to remain faithful and courageous, even though with all these accusations and criticism that's coming, and i got to believe that the Lord is with me. 
But what does that look like? Like, like what are some a truth that I need to cling to that's going to help me to see that these idols aren't worth anything, that the idols do not fulfill? I do think there's a principle that we need to understand in the midst of remaining faithful and courageous when we're confronted by the idols of this world. That is very attractive and very appealing. But it's this truth. We have to understand that nothing is worth more compared to what we have in Christ Jesus. Nothing is worth more compared to what we have in Christ Jesus. And I get this principle from, from, from the life of Paul. Uh, Paul, he ex- he's experienced great deliverance. Man, the Lord has delivered him from crazy things. But he's also experienced some great pain. Here's a man that has been shipwrecked, that has been beaten to death, stoned to death, experienced hunger, thirst, wet, tired, homeless, bitten by a snake, in jail all the time. And you're thinking to yourself, like, what is wrong with that guy? Man, he's just really committed. Like, there's something special about him. Maybe he's so disciplined. But Paul will say no. And in a straightforward way, this is what he says in Philippians 3, verse 7 to 11. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. In other words, what he's saying, whatever I have gained in this world is really a loss compared to what I have in Christ. More than that, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is he holding as most dear and most valuable? The surpassing value of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being known by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, horse poop, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. And my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being confronted to his death, assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from among the dead. So what Paul is saying is, as he is navigating through this world and as he is experiencing extreme loss, the dude, according to our world's economy, just looks miserable. And it's like, Paul, why would you put yourself through these things? Kick back and relax like the rest of the world. Pursue happiness, pursue comfort, pursue security, pursue meaning and significance. Maybe create a better brand name for you and for your ministry. Televise it on social media. Don't be this guy. And Paul says, all of that is horse poop compared to knowing Christ. Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being known by him, that he said, I have obtained a righteousness, not because of anything that I have done, but rather because of faith in Jesus Christ. 
if we are going to remain faithful and courageous in the face of opposition, if we are going to resist the temptation of the world's idols that are confronting us, we have to understand this truth. We have to see the beauty, the glory, and the riches, the passing value of knowing Christ. If we do not understand that, We're going to be swept up by the idols of this world. We're going to bow down to the golden statues thinking it will fulfill us. And so here's a question. Okay, what's so valuable that we have in Christ? Well, great question. The first thing that we have in Christ is a right standing before God, meaning that our sins have been forgiven. We've been accepted by God. And the righteousness that we have is not something that we've obtained or worked for, but rather it is a righteousness that Christ has given us. During our confession and assurance part, if you're not a believer or maybe you're new to the faith, you're thinking, man, what is wrong with this church talking about sin and God-hating idols and cutting them down and destroying them? But here's the reality, though. All of us are idol worshipers. We bow down to the idols, to the gods of this world, and we rebel against God. And yet God in His mercy and grace did not destroy us and our idols. He did not give us what we deserve, but sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins and our place to satisfy God's wrath that was rightly geared towards us because our entire lives we've been telling God, you are not God, I am God, this is God. You are a bad God, a terrible God. I want nothing to do with you, God. And yet, he did not destroy you, even though he had every right to destroy you. He had every authority and power to do it, and yet remain righteous and just in the process of it. But he sent his son, and he punished his son. Punishment you deserved, he punished. And now, because of Jesus, you have a right standing with God. When he looks at you, He doesn't see you and all of your imperfections and all of your flaws. But if you've trusted Jesus, if you put your faith in him, he sees you as perfect because he sees his son's righteousness in you. Like, what a wonderful truth. You have a bad day, you've really messed up. God doesn't say, oh man, I am so disappointed in you. I can't believe I just offered you salvation. Look at you, you messed it up again. But he sees you as perfect. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because what Christ has done for you. Another value we have in Christ, we're we're reconciled. We have a restored relationship with God, meaning we have now peace with God. We have access to God because of what Christ has done for us. Our world is chasing after peace. Every politician, every ruler, what do they promise? Peace. All we just want is just world peace. Let me tell you, peace cannot be obtained. Why? Because peace starts with God. If you do not have peace with God, you cannot have peace with one another. And if you're an enemy of God, which means you've rebelled against God, there's no peace. But because of Jesus and what he's done for you, he's reconciled, he's restored that relationship you have with God. Now you have 
peace with God. Now you have access to God. You can enter into His presence. You've been adopted into His family. You are sons and daughters of the King. You can sit in His presence. He says, come, my son, come, my daughter, come to me. Promises eternal life, nothing that Christ gives us. He's the living bread, the living water. True life can only be experienced in Christ, which means right now you can have life. You can have meaning. You can have purpose. You can have life filled with joy because it's a life in Christ, a life that is satisfied not because you do the things of this world, but because you're resting in Christ. You don't have to jump on that hamster wheel that's just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, chasing after these things that you'll never obtain, never accomplish. But you can have life as you're resting, as you're trusting in Him. A life even after death, an eternal life. Now, this could be a whole sermon series of all the benefits we have in Christ. I just wanted to whet your appetites to show you, look at the surpassing value we have in knowing Christ and being known by Christ. Because all of that, what Christ has accomplished for us, did we ask him to do these things? No. He initiated all these things because of his mercy, his grace, and his love that he has lavished on us. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, when we are confronted by the idols of this world, do we see the value of Jesus Christ? Is it more compared to what the world has to offer? That's a question only you can answer. And I know for us, Jesus even warns, there's a warning. Don't fear the one, I think it's in Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear the one that can harm the body. Fear the one that can harm the body and the soul. There is a sense of irony here in the fiery furnace. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to preserve their life, and save themselves from the fire. Chasing after comfort and security right now. What was waiting for them? Not comfort, not security, but fire. And again, what do we see as more valuable? The things that the world offers or the things of God? The things of God might be uncomfortable today. The things of God might be in our minds not best for us today, but it is, and it will be. And so, again, I'm, I'm, I think fear is a terrible motivator. Um, it might change your behavior, but it's not going to change your heart. So I really want to focus on, like, what the world has to offer compared to what Christ offers. And let me tell you, it's far more valuable than the world could ever offer because all of its promises are empty and fleeting. Look around you. Look how satisfied people are today. They're not. But look at what the Lord has to offer for you. Trust Him. Cling to Him. Be like Paul and say, I consider everything that I've gained, everything that the world offers, 
horse rubbish compared to the value of knowing Christ. My righteousness cannot be compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me trust him. Let me cling to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you did not give us what we deserved. Lord, all of us deserve death. We deserve the fiery furnace. Lord, you didn't save us from it, but you came and walked with us in it, and you have saved us out of it, and you are in the process of saving us out of it. And we're trusting that you who began a good work, we're going to finish it. Lord, my prayer for us, really, um, as we talk about idol worship, can you expose some of the idols in our hearts, the things we're putting our hope in, the things we're trusting in, the things that we think will comfort us and provide us security, give us meaning and purpose? Can you expose the emptiness of these things? And can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to see the surpassing value of knowing you and being known by you? The surpassing value of the righteousness that you have accomplished for us and that you've given us. It's far greater than our own righteousness or any righteousness that the world has to offer. And help us to remain faithful and courageous. As we continue to pray, we're almost done. I just want to give you some time to meditate on, on this truth or on, on this question. But do you see the surpassing value of Christ greater than what the world has to offer? And the second question is, what are some idols in your heart that you're bowing down to? That you're chasing after, hoping it would satisfy? Why don't you ask the Lord to help you identify those idols and to see the foolishness in bowing down to those idols so that you may see the surpassing value of Christ? And maybe there are some of you, maybe a handful of you, that you're thinking all of this is crazy. And yeah, on paper, it's very crazy. That's why Paul says the gospel is both weak to the strong and foolish to the wise, and yet it is the power to save. Because what the gospel tells us is that in order to obtain life, you must give it away. In order to receive, you have to surrender. You have to trust. And he promises to fulfill. He promises to give life. And so maybe the Lord is prodding your heart. Maybe you find yourself walking in here unsatisfied, unfulfilled, confused, anxious, overcome by fear. And what the Lord offers you is far greater than anything the world can offer you. And what that's going to require of you is to surrender and to trust him. The Lord offers you peace. 
He offers you reconciliation. He offers you righteousness. But what that means is you need to stop putting hope in yourself and in your accomplishments and your achievements, and you're going to have to trust and believe in him and what he's accomplished on your behalf. You're going to have to surrender. You're going to have to turn away from your sins and turn to him. And so this morning, maybe you want to use that as an opportunity to express to the Lord what you're going through and to surrender your life to him, to repent of your sins and to trust him. And as we get to the table, man, we are reminded of the work that Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf. The surpassing value we have in Christ, that we get to sit at his table as sons and daughters, We get to celebrate what the king has done for us. We're reminded we've been adopted into his family as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, heirs to the kingdom of God. And when the world gets hard out there, we huddle around the table because we're reminded about our faithful savior who has accomplished and bought us with his precious blood and that he is coming back to make all things new. And this table is only a shadow of the great wedding feast that is waiting for us. What a glorious day. So brother and sister, take heart, endure, remain faithful because he is faithful and what he has promised is as good as done. So come and feast on his body drink his blood, be reminded of the glorious truth, the reality that he has accomplished for you. He's bought you. He's redeemed you. He's purchased you. He's transformed you. You are his and he is yours. Rest in that. So let's go ahead and and distribute these elements and meditate on these wonderful truths. I've been meditating on Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. For my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. And the invitation he gives to us is an invitation to come to him, and come in under his yoke, submit to his lordship, to trust him, to be satisfied by him. So Jesus says, I am the living bread. He gives us his body. He says, eat it in remembrance of me and be satisfied in me and me alone. Take it and eat it. And then he gives us this cup that represents his blood that was shed for us, the new covenant we have in him. We can drink it in remembrance of him and be satisfied in him and him alone. Take it and drink it. Lord, we are so grateful that you fulfill, that you satisfy, that you give us abundant life, everlasting life, eternal life, and that all your promises 
is yes in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to trust in you, remain in you. Help us to chase after you. And Lord, may these words that we've learned, may it not just be intellectual words, but help us to experience it in a sense. We were just overwhelmed by your joy and by your peace. That's supernatural because it's from you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our King?